Hey, let's hear it for our worship team. Just wonderful. I love worshiping here. It's just great. I'm begging Colby just to let me hold the shaker thing. I just want to do... I have no musical ability whatsoever. It's tragic. Well, I had kind of a busy weekend. Uh, Biola Center for Marriage put on a marriage conference this past weekend on campus, uh, Friday night, Saturday. It was awesome. Uh, Colby and his wife, Brittany, actually helped counsel couples. You could sign up for a counseling time. It was great. As soon as that was done, I jumped in a car, went off to uh, watch a football game where the Brea Olinda Wildcats were underdogs against Elmo, who were the league, top team in the league. We beat them 27 to nothing. Our running back had 242 yards, and 60 of those were called back. Oh my goodness, God is good. (laughs) Well, we've been talking about first things. Uh, I mentioned a C.S. Lewis quote, life's made of first things, second things, get the first things in place, the second things follow. I offered mine just as conversation starters, but now we're going to go to the Apostle Paul, ask him that question. If you had to pick your first things rooted in the book of Romans, what would you pick? What would you uh, say are your first things? I'm going to argue that he would list his first things in a series of questions he would want the church then and now to answer. But before I introduce you to the first one, let me uh, share a story with you. I was on staff with Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, for over 30 years. Uh, I was a national traveling evangelistic speaker. When you have a title like that, people think of really crazy things for you to do. So I was in New York City. I was doing some consulting uh, with crew leadership in New York. And you know, Washington Square Park is in New York. And they got this crazy idea. Hey, why don't we put you in Washington Square Park and you can speak to the crowd in open um, speaking context. So when you do, you have to use a bullhorn. Uh, Everybody's there. It's craziness when you go to Washington Square Park. I'm walking there, and off to my left is a drug deal. I've never seen a drug deal before. It was like a person plopped down money, a person put down some white stuff, and then picked up the money. I said, oh, that was a drug deal right there. Okay, well, check that off the bucket list. You know what I mean? Um, I've never seen one of those. Then there was a group to my right, ladies with every color hair you could think of doing hacky sack, but they had infant pacifiers hooked to a chain through their nose, through their ears. I didn't ask. So uh, um, they give me my bullhorn. Now you're supposed to speak, right? Well, the crowd had gotten so large because crew did a great job of bringing the crowd together that two New York City police officers come up and they say, hey, I'm sorry, for a crowd this large, you need a permit. I'm thinking, yes, yes. There's no way they have a... They pull out a permit. (laughs) So now they're introducing, hey, we're from Campus Crusade for Christ. We love Jesus. We want to tell you a little bit. People start booing. Now think about that. Washington Square Park, you can talk about anything. Communism, Marxism, uh, radical uh, issues of every kind. But we mentioned Jesus, people start booing. Now, by the way, I've never been booed before. Not by like hundreds of people. So I walk up with my microphone. Last thing I said to the person next to me, anybody hear a trumpet? Anybody? Second coming? I don't know, maybe. Can we delay for a minute or two? I, you know. So I, I don't know what I said. I said something about God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. We're all separated by sin, yet Jesus. People were booing. When I finished, a man plopped up in the middle of Washington Square Park, unraveled the American flag, put uh, lighter fluid on it, and set it on fire. 
I was like, is that in reaction to me? I don't, it wasn't. It was about fair trade, some crazy thing about that. Uh, but I left kind of shaken. I was like, I, I never want to do that again. I'm just, you know what? The apostle Paul would have loved it. He would have loved that situation. See, what, what's interesting about Paul is his view of the gospel, and that's his very first, first thing. Paul wants to ask the question, is the gospel still powerful? Is it powerful enough to shape people? Is it powerful enough to cut through biases and prejudice and Christian stereotypes? He would believe that it is. And in a great passage, he lays out exactly what he thinks about the gospel and what that entails. So Paul says in the very first chapter, he says this, I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Right at the heart of this passage is the gospel. Now, what does Paul think about the gospel? This is what he believes about the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Most unique thing about Christianity is you can find salvation today. Islam, you have to spend a lifetime doing the five pillars of Islam, and then Allah, using the metaphor of a scale, will weigh your good actions and bad actions. Uh, Buddhism, you go through constant reincarnations, rebirths. Gautama the Buddha, it was rumored that he had 20,000 rebirths until he got to nirvana. Jesus says, no, I have the power to bestow salvation, and I can do it right now. Now, how is this salvation bestowed? Paul would later clarify by saying this, if you can confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That Greek word confess, we actually get it from two words, same to speak. So in essence, Paul is saying, here's the gospel. You must speak the same thing Jesus does. You must believe his teaching. What's his teaching? I am Lord. My interpretation of human life is the correct interpretation. So if you're going to confess Jesus is Lord, what are you going to believe? You're going to believe that the human race is in rebellion against God. We have been infected with a sin nature. We've been infected with sin. Now, what do you do about that? And what should God do about it? Hey, you rebelled against me. I remember reading a marquee that once said, feel far from God. Guess who moved? Right? We moved away from God. We rebelled against God. Now, what's he supposed to do at that point? God could have said, hey, you made this world of rebellion, war, rape, injustice. I'm going to judge all of you. I'm not going to rescue you. But God, in his infinite mercy, sent Jesus Christ to deal with us. But remember, what is Jesus dealing with? Paul will say the wages of sin is death. Now, death on two levels. One, death means that we're all growing older and dying. That was not God's intention for humanity. But we will die. So physical death, but more importantly, spiritual death. You have died towards God, right? You're in your rebellion. You have all the sin to deal with, right? That's an expression of the rebellion. So right now you have a huge predicament. How, what do I do about the sin I've already committed, will commit, and commit tomorrow, and what do I do about the sin nature that spurs me on to sin even more? What do I do about that? Jesus says this, you need a radical operation. I'm going to make you born again. I'm going to take that sin nature, change it, give you a new nature, and I will forgive you of all your sins. 
past, present, future, but you must believe in me. You must trust me. You must embrace me, not just Savior, but as Lord, which means Jesus is not interested in giving you fire insurance. He's not interested in just saving you from hell. He wants you to be on a trajectory where you're now his disciple. But this decision is one of the most important decisions you can make. It is my decision to transfer trust in myself to trust in God. When you die, God's going to ask a very interesting question of every person who's ever lived. Why should I let you into heaven? Why? Now, it's very interesting to listen to people's responses to that. Am I really going to stand in front of God and say, well, listen, God, I think I've had good days, bad days, but I'm going to roll the dice and say that I've had more good days than I have bad days, and God's going to say, really, you want to do that? I'll bring out the cosmic scales right now. We'll talk about sins, and we'll talk about good deeds, but let me define sin for you. There's many forms of sin. There's the sin of commission, things you did you shouldn't have done, lied, cheated, raped, murdered. There's the sins of omission. You're supposed to, things you should have done but didn't. You should love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You should care for the poor. Others should be more important. And I'm going to bring up witnesses to testify, starting with your spouse. Wow. Uh, Is there a deal on the table? Yes. The deal is transfer your allegiance to Christ. C.S. Lewis said salvation is very easy. Lay down your arms and the rebellion and embrace the king. That is salvation. So notice what Paul says. I don't want you just to confess this. I want you to believe it in your heart. In the Greek, heart is all of you. It's your emotions, your volition, your intellect. It's embracing him with all of you. God knows your heart when it comes to salvation, right? So this makes sense of one of the most perplexing prayers of the entire New Testament, and it's this prayer. You'll recognize it very quickly. This is the thief on the cross. Right? Now, he's a thief, right? He's being crucified by Rome because he's committed crimes. So he's being crucified, and you've got Jesus being crucified. Now, this, there's two thieves. One would mock Jesus, and the other one would say, I think I believe who you are. I think you are the Messiah. I want you to be my Messiah. And he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I was trained by Campus Crusade for Christ. I know the sinner's prayer. That is not the sinner's prayer. Right? But Jesus knows this man's heart. No, he knows he's in bad shape. He needs a savior and would be his disciple if, in fact, he lived. So at that moment, this person is saved. Isn't that powerful that we can offer salvation to people, not based on our merits, but on based on what God has done through Christ? Then he uses this word. This is so interesting. I am obligated to both the Greeks and to the non-Greeks, to the wise and to the foolish. What does he mean by the word obligated? Well, in the New Testament, there were two ways to get into debt. One way would be, what's your name? Jocelyn. Jocelyn, if I borrowed $10,000 from you, and she's thinking, yeah, good luck. Uh, $10,000, I would be indebted to you, obviously, until I paid back the $10,000. That's not how Paul's using the word. There's a different way to get into debt. So, Jocelyn, you give me $10,000, and what's your name? Steve, and I, you say, hey, I'm giving this to you, but I want you to give it to Steve. I'm indebted to Steve until I give him the $10,000 that you... It's just an illustration, sorry. There's no $10,000, okay? Um, so that's how Paul's using it. Paul is saying, you were given the gospel, but it's not yours to keep. You're indebted to give it to everybody else. And I'm going to hold you accountable for paying off your debts. See, that's interesting, isn't it? There's something called the judgment seat of Christ. We seldom talk about this. 
Uh, I'm sorry, so Leon Morris, a famous theologian, said, so to receive the gospel, in his estimation, is to incur a debt. Now, at the end of our lives, as believers, we're all going to appear in front of something called the judgment seat of Christ. This is where Christ is going to have a conversation with us as believers. Has nothing to do with God's love for you. That's secure. Has nothing to do with your salvation. That's been settled. But this is Jesus saying, listen, I want to know what did you do with what I gave you? So I always say this to my Biola students. I said, guys, you're all Bible minors. You get 30 hours of Bible. That's more than most pastors in the world get. So absolutely, God's going to hold you accountable. What did you do with this information? The only thing worse than being a Biola student is being a Biola faculty member, right? Because we're held to a higher standard. Listen, you go to um, E.D. Free of Fullerton. You've sat under the teaching of Chuck Swindoll, of Dale Burke, of Mike Erie. That's a lot of responsibility. And God is simply saying, I'm going to hold you accountable to what you did with this. And you were born in America with with a a wealth of riches. What did you do with it? And I think he's going to go down the list. He's going to say, you had a non-Christian family member. You were indebted to this person. You had the gospel. Did you pay off your debt? Did you give them the gospel? Did you explain it? Uh, You had non-Christian neighbors. Did you take time to do it? Tim, you went to UNC Chapel Hill. You were exposed to some of the finest PhD students, non-Christians, faculty members. What did you do with the gospel? Did you pay off your debt? I was so convicted by this, this passage, um, that this past summer I I had a chance to study with arguably one of the top feminist theorists in the world when it comes to communication theory. She's a wonderful woman. We're friends to this day. But I really didn't share the gospel with her. Now, I don't know why. It would have been awkward. Maybe she'd get mad at me. I didn't want to endanger the friendship. But the Lord really laid it on my heart. So last summer, I initiated an email correspondence with her. She's a Buddhist. And I read a book by Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist, who wrote a book called The Lotus and the Cross, where he imagines a conversation between Jesus and the Buddha. But, but this is a Christian writing it, so is he being fair to the Buddha? So I said to Julia, hey, can we talk through this book? I would love to do that. And you just check... Uh, Rabbi Zacharias's math to see if it was fair to Buddhism. So we did. It spurred out all summer, and I presented the gospel to her three different times. Now, she did not go for it. We protected the friendship. She, she still is not a Christian. I felt the release of the Holy Spirit. I just felt like the Holy Spirit said, awesome, and I wish that kind of would have happened seven years ago. But great. So again, Paul is saying, you're in debt. And we'll talk more about this later, but you're in debt. Now, let me show you who Paul was indebted to and us as well. Paul says this, I'm indebted, I'm obligated both to the Greeks and to the non-Greeks. Now, what does he mean by that? Some of your translations will use the word barbarians. That's actually a better translation than non-Greeks. But he tells us, I think, what he means by it when he says, both to the wise and to the foolish. So understand, the word barbarian, we get non-Greek from that, that was a derogatory term used by the Greeks, right? If you were not Greek educated, if you were not part of the in of society, if you were an outsider in society, if you were non-educated, if you didn't have wealth, status, prestige, they called you a barbarian. The actual Greek word is making fun of how you talk, like a barbarian is how they use that word in the Greek to make, it was derogatory. 
So Paul says, guess what? I'm indebted to both. I'm obligated to both, both the Greeks and the non-Greeks. So men and women, we need to think long and hard about this, right? We as a church are obligated to both groups. We are obligated to the people who fit well into a Southern California lifestyle, right? When it comes to looks, prestige, education, status, we're obligated to them, but we're also obligated to the people who don't feel comfortable. They're on the outside. They always feel like outsiders. We're indebted to both. That causes us to have big conversations we need to have as a church. For instance, when it comes to Easter, our church has done it both ways. One, we celebrated it at a high school, and we've done it here in church. Well, we need to ask the hard question, not what's best for us, my preference of how I want to spend my Easter, but what's better for getting the good news out to Fullerton, Brea, La Habra, right? What's best for them? Some people will not walk into this church. They will not darken the doorstep of this church. I don't care what we do. They won't come, but maybe at a high school, they would feel comfortable slipping in, right, unnoticed, or that you can come dressed however you want to be, and you can be part of the church service. Now, I'm not, I don't know which way we should go. That's above my pay grade. That's why we need to pray for David Fletcher and the elders. But another thing to think about, the church that I went to in North Carolina, the pastor preached in a coat and tie, and it was a huge church like this church, uh, but we were not economically diverse at all, but we were a large church. When we came to California, I was blown away by California, right? I'm from the Midwest. So first day we went to church in California, we were so dressed up, me, the kids, Maureen. People thought I was preaching. They thought, are you preaching? No, I'm just here. Like, well, what in the world? Is there a funeral after church? What are you, what are you doing? California is so interesting. It's like people who are, are going to go to church or the beach. Well, probably both. You know what I mean? So, so should the pastor be dressed in clothes like from Neiman Marcus, or is it okay to preach in cargo shorts? Well, it depends. Who are we trying to reach? By the way, just so you're wondering, Coles. This all comes from Coles, right? Because we've got a great coupon, right? Um, so, we, so again, I'm not saying which way is right or wrong. I'm simply saying as a church, we're obligated to both groups. Both groups Paul wanted to go after. And by the way, one thing I do know, we can't so try to reach one group that we exclude the other group. Right? So let me give you this illustration. Tell me who this individual is. Who's that upper left? C.S. Lewis. How many of you have read a book by C.S. Lewis? Raise your hands. Awesome. Right? Huge voice. By the way, he was a guy who could do both. He wrote absolutely academic books, and he wrote children's stories. These children's stories, by the way, kept him from getting tenure at a university. They didn't think academics should write kids' books, right? Now, by the way, there's a, um, there's a C.S. Lewis of atheism. Do you know who that is? That's Albert Camus. Albert Camus, after World War II, he was a French um, existentialist, atheist uh, philosopher, he gave hope to Europe. Europe was absolutely shaken. The whole world was shaken after World War II. We thought we were getting better and better and better, and then we're introduced to Hitler, Stalin, the gulags, and concentration camps. We were shaken to the core, and uh, Camus came up and said, look, there is no God, there is no ultimate purpose in life, but that doesn't mean you can't have purpose today. Just because the woman you're in love with is going to die eventually doesn't mean she's dead today, so enjoy 
today. Yeah, that wine will eventually go bad, but today it's not bad. That food will eventually go bad, but it's not bad today. There's no ultimate purpose in life, but that doesn't mean you can't have purpose today. And he gave hope to an entire continent that you could find purpose in a meaningless world, okay? So one day, there's an Episcopal priest who's preaching... And, he, and they bring in an organist, a, a really famous, well-accomplished organist. And there's commotion in the back of the church because Albert Camus has shown up to listen to the organist. And now he's having to sign autographs. He was that famous. So the Episcopal priest walks up to him and says, welcome to church? He goes, yeah, I thought the organ was exceptional and I didn't want to be rude, so I stayed for your sermon. I thought it was thought-provoking. Now, aren't you glad that we don't live in a world of social media? Don't you glad that that wasn't social media? Because it would have been on a blog the next day and you never would have seen Albert Camus again. So a couple weeks later, Camus comes back. Commotion in the back, Camus in the back again. The minister walks up to Camus and says, "Um, I would love to have lunch. Let's talk. Camus says, there's a restaurant. I've made a deal with the owner that if he ever tells anyone I eat there, I will never eat there again. So I'll send my driver to pick you up. They have lunch and for the next year continue to have lunch. Albert Camus. Finally, Camus says, I'm in. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm in and I'd like you to baptize me. Now, the minister says, I'm so sorry, I can't baptize you privately. Uh, I have to baptize you publicly, because that's what baptism is. Camus says, I can't do that to my readers. I cannot take the hope. It'd be like C.S. Lewis coming out later in his life saying, oh, by the way, I'm an atheist. Okay? So he wouldn't do that. Now, one week later, Camus is dead. He either committed suicide in the streets of Paris by driving his car into a tree, or he skidded out of control on a rainy evening. We, We don't know for certain. But men and women, two points to make. No one is beyond the gospel. And Paul believed that because people thought he was beyond the gospel. So now imagine we get to heaven and there's the great Albert Camus as a believer. Paul had that kind of expectation that he could reach anybody because the gospel was just that powerful. Now let me make one little side point. What brought Camus to the church? The organ. With, With people of a certain culture, right? You can't go at them directly. The defenses come up right away. They're too educated for that. They'll be defensive. So we need to speak sideways. And the sideways is through Christian art. My biggest problem with Christian art today, and I promise this is my last rant about, oh, it's not. All right, so, so, our Christian art is having this effect today, and I'm specifically talking about movies. We are not only turning off the Greeks, Right? Our movies get negatively panned all the time. Horrible reviews. We just say, well, that doesn't matter. I don't care what they think. Right? But, so the Greeks aren't going to come to such one-dimensional, flat characters where you have a freshman in high school who in one week uh, converts a, a, an atheist philosophy professor because he's just that smart and the atheist philosopher is just that stupid. Right? People see through that in a heartbeat. Nor is it getting us the non-Greeks. Right? People aren't going to walk into our movie theaters with Beth Moore making a cameo appearance. And so my general rule is if your movie comes with a study guide, it's probably a bad idea. Okay? So, laughter, no applause. Duly noted. Okay, move on! <clears throat> so then Paul said, I'm obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm eager to preach the gospel. Why was he so eager to preach the gospel? 
I so appreciate the men and women who have served in military service. It is a frightening ordeal. So anybody who has served in, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I absolutely sat down with my kids when age appropriate and had them watch Saving Private Ryan. The first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, knowing the raw courage those men had uh, storming Normandy, where the Germans had completely sighted the beach. You didn't even have to move your machine gun. They all had it sighted, and these poor men ran to their deaths trying to stop Hitler. Uh, the raw courage of the people who go in Desert Storm, Desert Shield, we're still in Afghanistan. But know that the U.S. military is committed to these individuals. They didn't just walk onto these battlefields. We prepared the battlefield. So let me show you a very interesting clip. This is a Tomahawk missile being launched. And as it's being launched, uh, I want to explain to you what's happening. A Tomahawk cruise missile is a 20-foot-long weapon costing $1.3 million. A booster rocket shoots the missile off a ship or submarine, and the missile is guided by three complex, three complex guidance systems. So as it travels 550 miles per hour, it can make elaborate twists and turns based on these three guidance systems. Basically, you take a picture of what you want them to hit, and the guidance systems, like a GPS system, will absolutely track. When it gets that target, it can hit like a suitcase a long ways away. So we prepared the battlefield for our men and women to go into these situations. Didn't mean it wasn't still dangerous, but we were preparing you with the might of the military. Paul was so encouraged to share the gospel because, in essence, God's done the same thing with non-Christians. He's prepared their heart to hear the gospel from you. This is what Paul would say. Number one, Romans 1.19, God is evident within them. Uh, John Calvin, the great reformer, would say God is in the marrow of human beings. He's in your bones. So that's why atheism has to be taught to people. Theism, a belief in God, man, you just grow up believing God exists. Humanity has always been deeply religious. 98% of humanity has always believed in God or gods or the supernatural. It's just part of our DNA. So people are wired to believe in God. Second, uh, their conscience bears witness, Romans 2.15. So Paul says the Holy Spirit is working in the heart of every non-Christian. Every non-Christian constantly gets the tug of the Holy Spirit. I didn't become a Christian until age 13. I felt that tug, though it was really hard for me to explain what it was. I felt this yearning towards God, even though we never went to church, never talked about God. God is doing that with every single person on planet Earth. He's preparing them to hear the gospel. Third, um, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen. So people who study cosmology, people who study um, the, uh, what the earth is like are drawn towards God. Listen to these amazing facts about planet earth. If the earth took more than 24 hours to rotate, temperatures on our planet would be too extreme between sunrise and sunset. If the rotation of earth were slightly shorter, wind would move at a dangerous velocity. If the oxygen level on our planet were slightly less, we would suffocate. If it were slightly more, spontaneous fires would erupt. Now, what does that tell us? It sure seems like somebody designed planet earth for human beings. It is so fine-tuned for human existence, and if it were just off a little bit one way or the other, we would all die on planet earth. We call this the anthropic principle, that it sure looks like an intelligent designer designed uh, life for human beings. Voltaire, 
the great French um, atheist made this comment. Voltaire never accepted a belief in God, but he was haunted by it. This is what Voltaire said. If a watch proves the existence of a watchmaker, but the universe does not prove the existence of a great architect, then I consent to be called a fool. Voltaire was haunted by it, never consented to it, because a lot of times people don't accept Jesus because they don't have enough evidence or facts. They have ulterior motives. Right? I want to live in my rebellion, and I don't want to give up the rebellion. That's why people sometimes turn away. But Paul was so eager to preach the gospel because God has prepared the hearts of every single person you're going to encounter. And like C.S. Lewis said, the hound of heaven is after these people. Uh, that's planet Earth and all of its glory. Uh, I love what James Boyce says about these billboards that are everywhere. You just can't miss them. He says this, Paul is not saying that the sign is there but hidden that we are only to find it if we look very carefully, so you have to be an academic to find these clues. He is saying that the sign is plain. It is a billboard. In fact, it is a world of billboards. Everywhere you go, you run into God. Uh, Just to show how this works, Douglas Copeland is an atheist uh, cultural critic. He's the one who came up with the term Generation X. He came up with the term Nick Job. Uh, Yet, in a moment of utter transparency, this is what he says. Now, he's still an atheist to this day. But I just want to show you how God's preparing his heart. He says this. Now, here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. My secret is that I need God that I'm sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving, to help me be kind because I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. God has prepared his heart. Wouldn't it be great if you were the Christian to sit down with him and in a loving, civil, compassionate way gave him the rest of the story and gave him the gospel? Who knows? Who knows if we don't get to heaven and there is uh, Camus. And maybe if the person had enough faith, could share the gospel of Douglas Copeland and he would uh, embrace the gospel. Then he says this in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. I I read a book by George Roche and in it Roche said this, "Uh, real heroism requires courage. It entails peril or pain. Heroism has a selfless quality. The hero's deed is ennobled not alone by courage, but the call to duty or the service to others. So who are these individuals? Uh, These are three Americans who are on a fast-moving train from Amsterdam to Paris, and they move up to first class. Why? Because they want to get better Wi-Fi connection. And as they're there, uh, a man enters first-class cabin with an AK assault rifle and starts to point it at people, except the weapon is jammed, and he's trying to unjam it. These three guys just look at each other, and one of them says, hey, let's get him. And these three American guys run after him. The man sees him come and pulls out a box cutter and severely wounds one of them almost cuts off his thumb and hits some other people with it as well. These three men, these three 22-year-olds, subdue him and then start to care for people that are bleeding out, ignoring their own wounds. You know, the, the president of France gave them the highest award for bravery France can give. President Obama did the exact same thing. Highest award you can get for a citizen, an act of bravery. Why? Because they set aside their personal interests They risked their lives to help people they didn't know. Boy, that's bravery. I say this about Jesus. How does that not describe what Jesus did? 
I love saying this to people. I love saying this about Christianity. I just say, listen, take it or leave it, but understand what it is. God was so concerned about you that he sent his son, who never did anything wrong, and Jesus died for you. He died a horrible death, a death so horrible, Rome banned it for Romans. Romans were excluded from being crucified. It was so barbaric. Jesus dies. I love what um, Max Licato said. He just spoke at Biola a couple weeks ago. Max Licato said this. What do you do with a God who'd rather die than be without you? I love just presenting it to people, saying, hey, this is how much Jesus loves you, and he offers you salvation today. He's not asking you to clean up your life and then become a Christian. He's saying, no, 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 embrace me with your heart. Confess me, and you can have salvation. And I leave it there. I love saying to people when I share evangelistically, guys, the only reason I'm doing this is it changed my life, and I think it can change your life. It's not like if I get 10 of you to convert in a month, I get a flat-screen TV, right? No, I'm just, I'm doing this because I actually care about you. Take it or leave it. Jesus didn't force himself on people, but take it or leave it. But just know the love of Jesus is what compelled him to die for you and compels me to tell you about it. So men and women, two things. One, this week, let's come up with a list. I'll come up with it, you come up with it. The list is, to whom are you indebted? I I want you to think of family members who don't know Jesus, right? You've been given the gospel. It's not yours. You're supposed to give it to them. What about non-Christian neighbors? Non-Christian faculty, yeah, Biola. No, I'm thinking Azusa. Um, No, stop it, stop it. We love Azusa. That whole thing is, everybody knows we love Azusa. They love us. We're fine. Um, So, but but what non-Christians do you have in your life that you're indebted to? Let's make that list and let's start praying for that list. I don't know how long that list will be, three people, five people, ten people, and pray for them every single day. Do you know, I I shared this at a Campus Crusade for Christ winter conference one day. I said to them, let's come up with our list, and they did, all these college students. One guy came up with a list of five people. He goes home, now he's away at Christmas, right? He goes home, they're having a Christmas party, he walks in, at a table are sitting four of the five people are at one table. He literally walks to the door and he's like, Wow, Lord, you couldn't make that any clearer. So he sits down. They say to him, hey, how was the conference? They're all non-Christians, but how was the conference? He said, you know what? It was actually great. I'd love to tell you about it if you had time. There's like, well, yeah. He pulls out four spiritual laws, gives them to each one, says, turn to page one. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Page two, you're sinful and separated from God. Page three, Jesus is the means by which to come to God. Page four, you can do that right now. He stops, takes a deep breath and says, uh... Anybody want to do that now? (laughs) Three of the four pray to receive Christ right then. Why? Because, yeah, because God had prepared their hearts. I got to Miami of Ohio University. I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. My first time sharing with a person, I sit down, I pull out the four spiritual laws. The kid looks at me and goes, all right, yes, I'll do it. (laughs) I said, what? He goes, yeah, I'll do it. You're not the first to show this to me. You're not the first. And I've been thinking about it ever since, and I thought, if I ever come across a crusade person again, I'm going to do it. So I'm doing it. What do we got to do? I said, I'm going to like it here. I'm going to like it at Miami. So men and women, let's start praying today. Let's pray that God gives us opportunities to minister to these five people and actually present the gospel. Now, let me just say this. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I've 
believe in my heart that Jesus is my Savior. I don't know if I've invited him in as Savior and Lord. To my left is our prayer room. Please go and tell somebody in the prayer room, I'd like to hear more about the gospel. Grab me, grab somebody from the uh, staff team, somebody from the worship team. We'd love to sit down with you and tell you exactly what the gospel is and give you an opportunity to respond to it. So let me pray for us. Father, we come before you. We are deeply humbled at the sacrifice of Jesus. We think of what it cost him. Father, we're humbled that he would die for us. In our rebellion, before we cleaned up our act, he died for us. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the impact it can have in Fullerton and Brea. I pray that you'd bring to mind specific individuals who are not Christians, who don't have the gospel. Both in the category of the Greeks and the category of the barbarians. Those in culture and those who feel like outsiders. Father, bring to mind family members, co-workers, neighbors, friends from high school. Lord, bring them to mind, and our pledge is that we will pray for them. Thank you that your spirit already is working in their hearts, already preparing them. Give us the faith. Give us the words to share the gospel. We do this for Jesus' sake and humble appreciation towards him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.